This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Karen Joy Fowler. She is the author of six novels and three short story collections. Her novel, The Jane Austen Book Club, spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Fowler's previous novel, Sister Noon, was a finalist for the 2001 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Her current novel is called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. We began our interview by talking about how she came to be a writer. I think that I have always been a storyteller. Um, If my parents were still alive, I think they would confirm that I was just a terrible liar as a child, Um, but that um, my motivation was not really to get out of trouble over something that I'd done, but more to make a a better story out of whatever had happened to me. Um, And I have always been read to um, or read to myself, so books have always been an enormous part of my life and a very important part of my life. I've always said that I will never write a memoir because I've spent half my life and in some ways some of the best parts in other people's imaginary worlds. Um, but I didn't I didn't really decide to be a writer until I was 30. And um, I, I can't really pinpoint exactly what my plan was. I I do think that I had not taken creative writing courses. I didn't know writers. I wasn't even an English lit major. Um, And I lived in California, so I'm far from the New York publishing scene. So I think that I really had very little idea of what I was about when I made that very conscious decision that I was going to try to write. So tell me about the original impetus for you to write We Are Completely Beside Ourselves. In general, for people who haven't read it, it's the story of a young woman who slowly reveals that she was raised as a baby alongside a chimpanzee who was her sister. Her name was Fern, the chimpanzee, and part of her family, and Uh, Some things happened when she was younger, and they were separated from the chimp, and it's her trying to put the pieces of her life together. There are only two books in all of the books that I have written um, in which I can be very specific about the moment I got the idea and the moment I knew I would write that book. And those two books are The Jane Austen Book Club and We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. In the case of We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, um, I was telling my daughter uh, as part of talking about her grandfather, my father, who died before she was born and therefore is a sort of mythical figure in the family to his grandchildren. I was talking about him. He was an animal behaviorist at Indiana University. He worked with rats and he studied learning in rats. So he ran rats through mazes and saw how they learned to work the maze, but a a different psychologist at Indiana University, although he left about the time that we arrived, so my dad did not overlap with him, but his name was Winthrop Kellogg, and he did a very, very famous in psychological circles experiment in the 1930s in which exactly that happened. He raised his infant 
son alongside a young chimpanzee. So I was telling my daughter the bit I knew at that time about that experiment. Um, and she said to me, you know, wow, what, it, what would it be like to have a father who thought it was appropriate to raise you as part of a psychological experiment of that kind of magnitude? You should, you should write that story, Mom. And I, I don't have good ideas, but I know them when I hear them. The minute she said it, I thought, you know, I don't know a lot about chimps. I'm going to have to do a lot of research and find out about chimpanzees. But I know a lot about psychologists. I can write that book. And what was your research like? Because that's, you know, chimp behavior is such a huge field. And it took me many years. Um, I, I, I don't. My daughter and I had this conversation actually on the Millennial New Year or the day after. Um, so, and the book came out last year. So I have been thinking about this book and and reading what I could um, f- for about that long. I, I I can't claim to have been working on it all that time. I wrote two other books in that same uh, eleven year, twelve year period, but. Um, but that book has always been in my mind, and I was always doing bits of reading about it. Um, there are lots of, it, it seems, in fact, that almost everybody who did bring a chimp into a human home in order to try to raise it um, wrote a book about it. So there are lots of books about that. I think the Kelloggs are the only ones who did an experiment that involved an infant child as well. But there are lots of books about home-raising chimpanzees and what the experience was like and what what living with the, the chimps was like. I did that. I went up to uh, the Center for Human and Chimp Communication in Ellensburg, Washington, where they used to have... Uh, uh, this is a, a facility that was built for Washoe, Essentially, Washa was one of the most famous of the home-raised sign language chimps. And so, you know, Washa lived in Ellensburg for a while, and, and several other chimps were brought in as well. Washa died before I got there, but there were three chimps in residence when I was there. And you could, at that time, take something they called a chimposium, so that you spent the day in the lab um, talking to the people who worked with the chimps and observing the chimps. Uh, sadly, it doesn't, I, I would love to tell everybody that they should go do these chimposiums because it was just fabulous. But um, one of the three chimps that was there when I was there has since died and the facility decided that two chimps was not sufficient socialization and to provide. So the chimps have been moved to a sanctuary and I think the chimposiums no longer happen. I did that. I also took, um, because my my interest began to expand dramatically from just the chimps into animal cognition in general. So I took a, I took a class at uh, UC Santa Cruz. I live in Santa Cruz on animal theory and did a lot of reading, and that reading led to more reading. So um, it's been a long but very joyous research process. Uh, and, you know, everything that I picked up, I thought was pretty fascinating. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Karen Joy Fowler, author of the novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. So tell me about the writing process. The main character, it's told in first person through Rosemary Cook, and she is a very strong and voicey presence in the book. It's got a great voice that she gives, that you give to her. And did she just sort of come to you? How did you create this character after you were doing all your research? Or maybe she came to you during? I I do a lot of the work I do in making up my characters and my plots and everything about my book as I, as I write. I have a very revision intense kind of process where I I move slowly forward constantly rewriting what is behind me um and and figuring out who who the characters need to be and who they might be given um the situations that I've put them in and the histories I've provided them with in the case of Rosemary when I started um I had an idea that the book would be about language uh, and that it would be about who spoke and who didn't speak and who wanted to speak and who didn't want to speak and who was spoken for. Uh, and, And every character in the book, I've done some sort of effort in trying to place them in that sort of configuration of of what I think their their own relationship to their verbal presence in the world is. And so I knew that, um, you know, because Rosemary was raised with a chimpanzee, that the primary place in which she would excel over her sister would be language. And so I wanted a character who whose words mattered to her a great deal. Uh, I wanted a character who talked a lot um, during the period in her childhood when she is sort of competing with her sister for attention. And then um, I wanted a character who had stopped talking. So uh, in that's kind of what I started with. And in, in some ways, you know, it, it gave me some things about her which were just great fun to put on the page that... Um, you're often told as a writer that you should not use a hundred dollar word if a if a nickel word will work. Um, but because of her particular uh, relationship to language and because of the way she was praised for her verbal abilities, uh, I was able to create a character whose vocabulary is actually quite preposterous. And people um, who've read the book frequently ask me you know, how many of these words are also in my vocabulary? And the answer is none of them. You know, I I went to the GRE test, uh, the, the verbal part of the GRE test booklets, 
in order to find the words that Rosemary would apparently use quite trippingly off the tongue, but um, I would have to look up and try to remember. So that, it was it was fun. It was fun to um, give her a voice that allowed me to be very imaginative in the words that she chose for things and, um, and to create a character who... Uh, who is recovering her voice. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Karen Joy Fowler, author of six novels and three short story collections. Her latest novel is called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which is a first-person account of a young woman struggling to come to terms with her unusual childhood. Until the age of five, she was raised with a chimpanzee as a sister. So one of the things that's interesting about the main character is because she was raised from an infant right alongside Fern, the chimp, um, until she was about five, it was that she actually took on some qualities of the chimp. Uh, She was described by her kindergarten teachers when she finally went to school as kind of possessive and maybe didn't know her personal space boundaries. And I thought that was an interesting aspect where here we are to study the chimps, but what effect will that have? How will that change my own human child? Um, I think that's something that you discovered a little bit in your research, but can you talk a little bit more about that and her character? Yes. um, This was, I think, a great surprise to the Kellogg's in that original experiment because they had what they were ostensibly looking at when they brought a chimp into the family was a sort of comparison of what the human child was able to do at certain ages and what the chimp was able to do at similar ages and, you know, sort of to chart the development of the chimp and the child side by side and see what you had. And I think that they did imagine that um, even at the outset that living in a human family would impact the chimp, whose whose name was Gua. And so, you know, sure enough, you know, Gua drinks with a cup and uses silverware and spends more time walking upright than a, a chimp her age would normally have done. But what does seem to have been completely unanticipated was the impact on, on Donald, the human child. And we do now think that we know that... Um, human children are much more imitative than chimp children are. So in retrospect, this could perhaps have been predicted, but we didn't know it then. And one of the reasons um, that the Kellogg experiment came to a fairly early close is because Donald was picking up chimp behaviors and his mother finally said, well, that's that's the end of that. But the story is that um, chimpanzees hoot very excitedly when food is put in front of them. They have It's called the food hoot. And that one day they put Donald's breakfast in front of him and he food hooted like a chimpanzee and that his mother said, that's, that's the end of that experiment. His language was also quite retarded by the, by the experiment as well. So although he was able to make up ground once the experiment ended, he did not, his vocabulary did not, he did not acquire it at the rate that you would expect a normal human child to. 
his sister is still alive, and I got a couple of emails from her when the book came out about their family and and about how how what a huge impact on the family that experiment, which ended before she was born, had that she and Donald were both mocked at school for this experiment, for being part of a chimp family, and that she was teased because she was the younger sister, that she, because the chimp had been removed, she became the chimp in the minds of the children that she went to school with, and that she was teased pretty mercilessly. And um, and and Donald um, tragically killed himself when he was 41 years old, and I don't know enough to know you know, to know if that can be linked to that very early experiment or not. But I think that it may be linked to the fact that he had a father willing to do that experiment. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, and it's from the book that I believe is far and away the most influential book on my own storytelling and my own sense of what writers can and cannot do, which um, is basically that writers can do almost anything. And it's The Once and Future King by T.H. White. So I've read this book since I was 11 or 12 or 13. I don't actually remember, but many, many years. And I've read it over and over again. And I just, I think it's an amazing book. And it's really disabused me early on from the idea that I heard a lot when I began to work in writers' workshops. Um, that there were rules I needed to follow and contracts with the readers um, or that I needed to pick one genre and stay in it because he's just all over the map. There are parts that are really comic and there are parts that are really tragic and there are, are lots of anachronisms and also parts that are very historically accurate and um, all of it is wonderful. So I'm just going to read these two paragraphs, which are from the start of the, I think it's the third section, The Ill-Made Night. So this is where Sir Lancelot appears for the first time. In the castle of Benwick, the French boy was looking at his face in the polished surface of a kettle hat. It flashed in the sunlight with a stubborn gleam of metal. It was practically the same as the steel helmet, which soldiers still wear, and it did not make a good mirror, but it was the best he could get. He turned the hat in various directions, hoping to get an average idea of his face from the different distortions which the bulges made. He was trying to find out what he was, and he was afraid of what he would find. The boy thought that there was something wrong with him. All through his life, even when he was a great man with the world at his feet, he was to feel this gap, something at the bottom of his heart of which he was aware and ashamed, but which he did not understand. There is no need for us to try to understand it. We do not have to dabble in a place which he preferred to keep secret. So there's just so much in those two paragraphs that um, that I love and and that I take inspiration from. And, you know, one of them is, is the omniscience of the narrator who says we're looking at the same kind of steel helmet soldiers still wear, although he's talking about... Um, early medieval period, Um, but particularly the finish. There's no need for us to try to understand it. We do not have to dabble in a place which he preferred to keep secret. That sense that even though I am telling a story, 
I don't have to understand every part of my story, and I don't have to explain to the reader every part of my story, that there can be parts that I just say, um, never mind, you know, we we can't understand that part, or we are too polite to understand that part, and um, so we'll just move along past it. How about something that you wrote? It can be something that you thought was hard to write or something you succeeded at or something that changed a lot. Um, For this, I picked two paragraphs. They're not contiguous, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. But it's from a short story um, called Private Grave Number 9. And I actually published this story and, and was never satisfied with it. I felt that the protagonist in particular was still very murky and that I he he's about in the story he does something quite appalling. And I think the impact of that appallingness is muted and unsuccessful because you don't really understand him well enough. And when um Small Bear Press put together a collection of my stories. They said that if I wanted, I could write it again, even though it had been published, um, since I was unhappy with it. So that's what I did, and I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs that I added in the rewrite, which were uh, all about me trying to figure out better who my protagonist was. And I sort of lit on the idea because he is a photographer, I felt that I had not made much use of that and that that there were opportunities there that a photographer might see things in a different way than other people would and that I could use that to deepen and illuminate his character a little bit. So I'm going to read you a couple sections where I've tried to do that. I didn't think of myself as unengaged from the world so much as careful in it. Like many other people, I preferred watching to doing, only I preferred to do my watching within the spatial and temporal limits of the camera. A photograph is a moment you can spend your whole life looking at. I like the paradox of that. A photograph isn't a narrative, so it's harder to impose on it. The only person who sees a photographer in a photograph is another photographer. And then I've got another bit um, towards the end of the story, two paragraphs. I've tried to tell all this as carefully as I could. Davis with the sunlight flashing off his spectacles, Miss Whitfield dipping her hand in the fountain, Malik in his nightshirt, fair-hid smile, Miss Jackson kneeling before God's face in the clouds. All that happened. All that was real. I'd rather you looked at that instead of at me, and yet here I am. Some people are sensitive to exposure, and some aren't. Miss Whitfield left her mark on me, but took no mark in return. Me, I've always been the sensitive sort. All right, and tell me a little bit more about why you chose these. I added them in in order to try to solve a problem that I that I saw. So they were, you know, they were a, a very deliberate and late addition in. Uh, in the story, and as I said, um, just I thought it illustrated sort of the way I was trying to solve the problem of a character who had never really come into focus, so to speak, for me. 
which was that by focusing on his job as a photographer, there were things, there were metaphors there that I could use, and particularly things involving time and involving narrative, um, the passage of time and narrative as opposed to the moment of a photograph that seemed not only useful to the story I was telling, but um, but uh, illuminating about the character I was trying to deal with. So um, they were a large part of why I am much happier with the rewritten version than I was with the original published one. So where do you write? I move a lot when I write. I, I have a laptop, and if the day is not going well, one of the first things I do is change my seat. Um, I have several places in the house where I write. Um, We have a a sort of studio out back that I can move to if the house has proved not useful to me. And and I go to cafes if I'm really stuck. Um, Paradoxically, if I go somewhere where there's a lot of noise, I can frequently concentrate better. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? We live a few blocks from the ocean, and I walk along the ocean, Santa Cruz. Uh, We live on the west side of Santa Cruz, so we're up above the ocean. There's a a pathway on West Cliff Drive that just goes along the tops of the cliffs. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I really, really love writing workshops, and I'm in a ton of them. So I... I will take it to one of my writing workshops, whichever one is meeting closest to the date when I have something to show, which is not to say in any way that I listen to what people tell me in writing workshops, but that in the process of hearing what they think, I usually, what I think uh, is clarified. And it may be what they also think, but it may very well not be. It may be that when I'm hearing their opinion. I am realizing that I don't agree, and I am figuring out why I don't agree. So just the process of getting feedback is very clarifying to me. But I always I always tell people that I think writing workshops should come with a warning label because it can be really damaging to your writing to listen to what everybody has to say. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, surprisingly persistent. I think this is one of the things that I wouldn't have known about myself and wouldn't even have guessed about myself until I began to be rejected, which is because um, I'm as sensitive as the next person and I dislike being told that my work is fallen short and I really thoroughly dislike the... the um, common wisdom that you shouldn't take it personally, that you yourself are not being attacked. It's just your work that's been found wanting because, of course, your work is yourself in my experience. So that's a pointless distinction. So, um, you know, I, I spent five years getting nothing but rejections, and I had 23 rejections on my first novel before anybody bought and published it. So um, I turned out just to be a whole lot tougher than I thought I was going to be. Every one of those rejections was very painful when it arrived, and often it took me 
24 hours or 24 days to kind of get back on my feet again, but I always did. And uh, and in the end, I think um, I'm also just sort of a contrary person, that the more you tell me that I can't do something, the more determined I am that I will do it. And what is your favorite word? Now, this is a, just such a hard question because I really like them all. There's not a word I don't like. And, you know, there are words I like because um, their meaning is beautiful. And there are words that I like just for the sound. And so there are all d- different sorts of aesthetics. There are words I like because I have a personal history. Um, so this is just a really difficult question. But I like words. Uh, I like words with V sounds in them. So I like words like jazz and buzz and zigzag. And um, that's the best I can do, to offer you jazz as my favorite word, but mostly because of the way it feels in my throat and the way you can extend the sound of it indefinitely. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Karen Joy Fowler, author of the novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.